It's such a delight to have you all here. For those of you who may be first-time visitors or may not have been here last week, we are looking at early church heresies right now. And our specific heresy that we looked at last week that we'll finish up this week is the heresy that modern scholars call Gnosticism. Gnosticism. The G is silent. So it's not Gnosticism. It is just Gnosticism. I want you to practice. Hello, Helen. Come on in. Take your seat. We saved it for you. We're just glad you're here. Um, uh, uh, If those of you who don't know Helen, Helen is one of our people who leads our fellowship group for the 90 plus age group. Yes, I know you're 91. She's the 91 plus age group. Excuse me. If you're 90, you don't get into her club. And she wants that real clear. So let's, boom, got that settled. We got it, Helen. Okay. um, Gnosticism. Would you say it with me? Gnosticism. Very good. All right. That's an early church heresy that really rocked the church. Not in a positive way. It rocked the church in the sense that it was a serious problem that took well over a hundred years, two hundred years to root out. And it's because of the attraction of the problem. The attraction to me comes from this whole idea of secrecy. We all love secrets. Uh, you know, someone comes up to you. Can you keep a secret? Most of us, the answer is no. But we always say yes, so we can hear the secret. Because when we say no, generally the people don't talk to us anymore about it. We like secrets. I can remember when our son Will was a, a young man at home before he'd gone off to college. He came to me one day and and, and I have a Those of you who don't know me, I have a tendency to buy books. (laughs) And I had bought a book that he came across and he read. The book was called The Bible Code. It was not on the New York Times bestseller list for some time. And there was a reporter guy named Michael Drosnan who, who was convinced that he had figured out a secret code to be found within the Bible, specifically the Hebrew Torah, those first five books of the Hebrew Old Testament. It even made the newspaper. The Sun headlined, Hidden Bible Messages Revealed. There are to be found here seven secret signs of Jesus' return to earth. A warning of Sodom and Gomorrah catastrophe. See, these are secrets that are found. If you just know how to read the Bible code. And boy, did it sell. It sold enough for a sequel. Bible code two. And and let me tell you about the Bible code. I don't know how many of you may have read it. But it was based on the idea that God gave Moses 
the Hebrew Torah, those Torah, those first five books on Mount Sinai, word by word, letter by letter. And Moses would have written these down with no spaces between the letters. The words would all run on one to the next to the next. And the Bible code was found by putting all of those Hebrew letters together in the Torah using a computer to help you find every nth letter. Let's find every fifth letter or every fourth letter or every third letter such that within some short span you find a new word being made, which when you turn it into English letters is an English word for God's message for us today. Um, well, you can go back and do that with a computer and you can find all sorts of secrets. And if you're just looking at it, you think, wow, this is really amazing. And Will came to me and he said, dad, this is really amazing. What do you think? I said, Will, be suspicious of anybody who tells you they've figured out the secret code of the Bible or God's message. Be suspicious. You could do the same thing with any written material, including the King James Version of the Bible. It's just something that happens when you have something with a whole lot of letters and words in it. This is not something special God gave Moses on Mount Sinai as a hidden code so that we in the 21st century, or at the time the 20th century, would be able to deduce seven secret signs of Jesus' coming. Look at Genesis 31, 28. Out of the Hebrew Torah? No. Out of the King James Version of 1611. And look at that last line. Daughters, question mark, thou hast now done foolishly in so doing. Do you see the hidden code? No, you need to apply Michael Drosnan's formula. So first, let's get rid of punctuation and get rid of all of those spaces between the letters. Let's just have it as one long string. Daughters, thou hast now or done Foolishly in so doing. You got it? See the code yet? Okay. You want to... We've gotten rid of the spaces. You want every fourth letter. All right? Every fourth letter starting with the R. O. S. W. E. L. L. Am I the only one thinking Twilight Zone? Okay. Now, Drosnan has another thing you do. You then take those letters in the formula you found and you put them in like a find a word type crossword thing where you adjust them every fourth letter. So it would be something like that. Uh, You get the S left over, but and my daughters, thou, huh. My daughters, thou hast n, 
utters, thou hast now do. Okay? And once you've got that, you carve out the four-letter block that's got the secret word in it, and you look for some other message to confirm the secret message. Say every third letter, like U, F, O. Whoa! I can't get the O to appear. There it is. UFO! Whoa! Clearly! Now, it's pretty clear God had a secret message in the King James translation of 1611 that would have helped us prepare for the Roswell alien crash that happened at the end of World War II. Well, I want to make a suggestion to you. God is not in the business of secrets. Now, don't get me wrong. Is Revelation a bit puzzling? Of course. Are there reasons for that? Yes. But when it comes to the salvation message of Jesus Christ, it is no secret that is hard for us to figure out. There's no special knowledge that the super spiritual have. If you've spent your life wondering why you seem to struggle with sin, why you seem to struggle with faith, why you seem to struggle with your walk with the Lord, and you wonder why there are people like David Fleming or me or someone else that you think must have it all put together with no struggles, is there some secret we've got? The answer is no. Jesus Christ is the answer for me, for Pastor David, and for you. The struggle against sin is a struggle against sin for me, for David Fleming, and for you. The struggle of faith is a struggle of faith. It is still called faith. Even though it's based upon reason and experience, confirmation of the Spirit, so many different things, it is still faith for me, for Pastor David, and for all of you. This idea that there's some super spiritual secret is something that we should always be cautious of. And the early church was no different. Now, last week we started this discussion and I put out for you some information that I need you to have fresh in your brain. So if you were here last week, after this, you've got no excuses for forgetting it. If you were not here last week, fasten your seatbelt. We're going to go through it a little bit quicker. But I want you to think first century Greek thought for a moment. For Hundreds of years now, for three or four centuries, Greek thought has ebbed and flowed with some of the teachings that we typically today call Platonic. Because Plato had a theory of forms that said behind everything that's concrete, like a book, is the form or the idea of a book, something you can't see. So, for example, this is a table right here. This is a table as well. And I will dine 
for lunch at my mom's today at another table. Those tables look radically different, yet each is a table. What makes it a table? Plato says there's a form or a, an idea of a table. This is just a physical representation of that idea. And so for Plato, the, 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 the real truth, the valuable truth, is the idea, not the simple representation of that idea that we have here. If you limit your understanding of a table to this, you might miss that this is a table or that the dining table is a table. You might miss that only if you have that greater idea. And from this came a real dichotomy of thought, a, a division of thought that started applying to so many different areas and not simply things uh, uh, like this. The whole idea was there are things that we're able to see Things we're able to not see, ideas. Those things that are seen, things that are physical, things of this world in a tangible sense are different than those things that are unseen. So, for example, my human body is seen, it's visual. You can touch, you can feel, it can affect things in the physical, corporeal world around us. Corpus being Latin for body. Corpse, body, okay? Corpus Christi, body of Christ. Um, not if you've been to Corpus Christi necessarily, but we'll leave that alone. Um, body. But what about this mind, this, 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 this soul, this essence within a person that's unseen? The soul, the unseen is just not only just as real, maybe there's something else to be said about it. So the thought develops that that, that you dichotomize between these two. And the body becomes almost evil. It's considered the prison house of the soul. And, and doesn't it make sense? After all, this body just gets us into trouble anyway. Never have I been in trouble when my body was not there. It seems to follow me around everywhere. The soul, though, those things that are unseen, those are the, the higher things. Those are the good things. Now, you develop this thought process and you develop it and let it affect your ethics. Because, big point here, should have been bold in the lesson and on the PowerPoint. Big, big point, okay? So imagine this is like the entire one page on the lesson. Just like I should have just taken one page, put this point. Should be one screen, put this point. Three simple words. Ideas have consequences. What you believe affects how you live, 
what you do. Your theology affects your actions. Your concepts affect, your values affect how you live. And so there's something about this process within the cultural thought of the day. In comes the teachings of Christianity. And those people that don't hold on to the actual physical historical reality of the salvation work of Jesus Christ meet this Christian concept and begin to do a mashup, if you will, with their own ideas and values. And so we see within the development of the Christian church this concept that what is visible, what is seen as evil, what is unseen as good, starts mixing in. Now it's not orthodox Christianity. It's not what the church was teaching. It's not what the apostles handed down. It's not what Jesus taught. And yet, those who believed such things are trying to figure out how to mesh their system with what they read in the Bible. And we thought we were the first generation to try to read into Scripture what we want it to say. We're not. That's been done for as long as there's been Scripture. So within this framework, what these folks would do is they would seduce the church by saying what we have is secret knowledge. Don't you want to know a secret? We've got our own little Bible code that we will unfold for you. And the Greek word, the root, the Greek root for... Knowledge is the Greek word gnosis. They pronounced the G. We have made it silent. Sometimes we change it to a K. So we have knowledge. But we keep the K silent as well. So gnosis gives birth to what modern scholars term the Gnostic, Gnostic, if you will, the Gnostic movement. Now, last week we talked about this and we said, how did they handle the fact that there's the world? Where did this world come from? Because the world is physical. So how could a good spiritual God make an evil physical world? That was a perplexing problem. The solution of many of the Gnostics, most Gnostic solution was, well, it didn't quite happen that way. God just made a lesser God who made a lesser God who made a lesser God who made a lesser God until finally they've watered it down so much that they had some guy who was just bad enough to make the world. And so we talked about the ions of gods. Ion being a reference to a god. The Greek word ion ultimately means forever. 
or an era or an epoch, but it was this same concept. You had these gods who, who existed and, and they would make other gods. We talked last week about Valentinus, the Roman, uh, uh, who said there were 30 of these gods. And he got his secret knowledge from Jesus's parable about the kingdom of heaven. Should be talking about the gods. Where the laborer or the master went out and called some laborers in the first hour and some in the third and some in the seventh, some in the ninth, some in the eleventh. You add it all together. Thirty hours, thirty gods. That was the secret to the parable. And we looked at that last week. So you have this first god who's called first father. And he spawns, breathes with a goddess of silence that we don't read about in the Bible because she's See, you got the secret. And they produce these offspring of mind and truth who produce their own offspring, including ultimately word and life. Church becomes one of their offsprings as the generations peter down. So you've got all sorts of these things. But last week we left it alone and I said this week we would talk about it in a little more detail. What does this mean of Jesus? How can this be? How can you have Jesus Christ as God if anything physical is evil? And there were two general approaches that I want to talk about this morning. One approach is based on a Greek word. If we can go to the Elmo for a moment. There is a Greek word. uh, See if we're focusing here. Dokeo in the Greek. Yeah, that, um, which in English letters is that with a long O, dokeo, and that means to seem. And so scholars use that word, dokeo, and to seem, and from it, they talk about a set called the docetists, or docetism. Oops, there we go. So the docetist, docetism, said, yes, Jesus was God, but he wasn't really physical. He just seemed to be a person. He looked like a person. But in reality, when he walked on the seashore, he left no Now, Ann Young has pointed out to me when she and I were talking about this that that can't be true because she's read the poem Footprints. (laughs) But this was a philosophy. So Jesus wasn't real in a physical sense because otherwise he would be evil. He would have an evil body. So you had the docetists And that was a big movement, and there were a bunch. If we go back to the PowerPoint, there was another strain of thought that's very well exemplified by a man named Corinthus. And I found that picture of him on the Internet. It was not listed as Corinthus, but I think that's a pretty accurate picture of the fella. Here's what Corinthus taught. 
There was a man named Jesus, not born of a virgin, born of Mary and Joseph. And he was a good man. He was a holy man. He was an admirable man. And there came a time where the man Jesus went to be baptized by John the Baptist. And upon his baptism, the Spirit of God descended like a dove, and Jesus became Jesus Christ. And now the God Christ is inhabiting, is is co-dwelling in the midst of Jesus the man. And over the next several years, while God is in Jesus, Jesus does his miracles, does his ministry, but the time comes for Jesus to begin to suffer physically as the arrest happens and the crucifixion occurs. God, being good and thoughtful, he cannot suffer physically. So at that point, Christ leaves Jesus, basically goes and hangs out on a hill and watches Jesus, the man, suffer and die. This teaching and Corinthus were prominent in Ephesus, that region, coastal region of modern Turkey. Though it's now, the harbor's silted up and it's, it's not on the coast anymore. At the time, it was a coastal town. Harbor, uh, town of Ephesus, where John spent his latter days. John the Apostle. And John was aware of Corinthus. We read from John's, well, I would say his John's spiritual grandchild. John had a son in the faith named Polycarp. If you recall, we studied the martyrdom of Polycarp about a month or so ago. Polycarp had his own son in the faith, Irenaeus. So Irenaeus is a grandson to John in the faith, if you're looking at it in terms of generations. And Irenaeus was writing against heresies of the Gnostic variety in the 170 AD range. So put it about 70 years after the death of John, after the writing of the Gospel of John, uh, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, Revelation, Right about 70 years later, we have this writing. And in the process of writing, we are told a story about John. Whoops. Hold on. I just lost my place. We're told a story about John that was passed down from Polycarp. So Polycarp not only was taught by the apostles and conversed with many of those who saw our Lord, but was also appointed bishop of the church at Smyrna in Asia by the apostles. So Polycarp has apostolic authority. 
When we started this class, I told you, you can follow every link in the chain between what we are doing today and what we believe and what the apostles themselves taught. There's no black hole of history where we say, gee, what happened for that 150 years? We're not missing it at all. Here we're reading a writing from a student of Polycarp's who also knew Polycarp and is able to write, Polycarp was taught by the apostles and conversed with many of those who saw our Lord, was appointed bishop of the church at Smyrna in Asia. We too saw him in our early age for he lived on a long time and departed this life as a very old man having most gloriously and most nobly suffered martyrdom. He also taught the things he learned from the apostles, which he also handed on to the church, and which alone are true. Now he talks about, in the next set of verses, when the apostle John bumped into Corinthus in Ephesus. There are those who heard Polycarp say that when John, the disciple of the Lord, was at Ephesus and went in to take a bath, on seeing Corinthus there, he rushed out of the bathhouse without having bathed. Let us flee, he explained, lest even the bathhouse collapse because Corinthus, the enemy of the truth, is in there. Yeah, that is roughly the a Lubbock translation would be, hey, lightning is going to strike this dude at some point. I am not getting near him. That's what he's saying. Now, Irenaeus later tells us that this is what prompted John to write his gospel. And this is, by this, let me be clear, not simply Corinthus. But the Gnostic movement, docetism, this idea that Jesus wasn't really physical, Corinthus, all of it rolled in together prompts John to write his gospel. Do you wonder why John talks about Jesus after the resurrection eating the fish? Doing something very physical? John is writing, here's what Irenaeus says about why John wrote. John, this is book 3, chapter 11. John, the Lord's disciple, proclaimed that faith. This is entitled, Proof from John's Gospel that God is One. There's not some 30 ions of gods. There's one. There aren't a bunch of extra gospels that are giving you secrets. There are four. Uh, John, the Lord's disciple, proclaimed that faith. By proclaiming the gospel, he wished to remove the error that was disseminated among people by Corinthus and long before by those who are called Nicolaitans. Yes, they're referenced in Revelation. Nicolaitans, who are an offshoot of the falsely called Gnostics. Knowledge. 
Thus he confounded them and persuaded them that there is one God who made all things by his word, and not as they allege that the Creator differs from the Father of the Lord, that the Son of the Creator differs from Christ who's from on high, and who say they remained impassable when he descended into Jesus, the Son of the Creator, and then returned again into the the pleroma, the fullness, the heavens, that only begotten is the beginning. And these are capitalized because these are supposedly different gods and ions. While word is the son of only begotten. And that our creation was not made by the first God, but by some power that was located far down and cut off from communion with the invisible and unnameable beings. The Lord's disciple, therefore, wished to put an end to all such beliefs, tenets, and to make firm the rule of truth in the church. There is one God Almighty who through his word made all things both visible and invisible. He, John, indicated too that through the very word through which God fashioned the creation, he bestowed in turn salvation on the people who are in this creation. This is how he began with the doctrine according to the gospel that in the beginning was the word. The word didn't come after the beginning. The word wasn't made by something. The word was with God and the word was God. Do you see the import of that language when you read, and, and, and don't get me wrong, the way we teach those verses are very valid. But that meaning that we understand those verses have give special drive to John writing that message in the midst of a heresy. Now, I do want to say this, and, and Professor Danielson mentioned last night the heresy of the happy fall. You know, we don't rejoice over heresy, but we do worship a God who is not thwarted by heresy, but even in the midst of something heretical brings blessing like the gospel of John. So John writes his gospel and he writes first John, which is a book that many uh, of the class are trying to commit to memory. And I was going to ask Ann Young up here to recite it to everybody, but I knew she would never speak to me again and that she wouldn't come up here. So I decided against it. Look at First John with me for a moment and see now as we understand the Gnostic heresy, if some of these verses don't take on greater significance to you. That which was from the beginning is not made later, is not sixth generation God, is actually from the very beginning, inception, start, point zero, which we have seen. Unless you think we mean some spiritual sight, like I have perceived your aura. 
Let John add the words, with our eyes. We have looked upon and touched with our hands. It was not Casper the friendly ghost. It did not just seem to be a person. It was real flesh and blood. We touched with our hands. This concerning the word of life. Word and life, remember I showed you with the ions, they're not generations removed. They're from the beginning, the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it. And we testify to it. And we proclaim to you the ion life, the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we've seen and heard, we proclaim also to you. Now, let me pause for a moment and tell you something about the Gnostics. Most Gnostics taught the goal in this life is not to be saved from your sins. Sin, men. I mean, the body is the body. The body will do what the body will do. We can't be, you know, don't, don't look, don't let your body get you down. Just, hey, every dog will have its day. You know, the body is what the body is. People are people. Bodies are bodies. Not much we can really do about it. If you want to be saved... The real salvation is the liberation of your mind from your body. The secret knowledge is going to set you free. And then you won't be so worried about your body. Guilt floats away. After all, that's just your body. But you get the secret knowledge, you're ready to go. Not so Christianity. Christianity says, you are a person, body, soul, spirit. You are a person and you sin. And salvation is a rescue from your sin into the eternal grace and favor of God, the father and very presence of God. Which cannot be done when you are sinful. And the solution is not to snip some umbilical cord Of your soul from your body. The solution is full and complete redemption. By paying the price for your sin. And so John is able to write about this. And say we not only are proclaiming this to you. But we're doing it that you may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the father. And with his son Jesus Christ. So this is this is how you unite to God. You don't unite to God fleeing from the from from the idea of the body being anything. You don't unite to God with secret knowledge. You don't unite to God by Jesus being ephemeral. You unite to God by the historical fact that a physical, real Jesus Christ, fully human, fully God, paid the price for your sins so that you as a total being can be redeemed before the Lord. 
And that's the faith. And that's what he says. This is the message we've heard from him and proclaimed to you. God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we're lying. You can't say, yes, I have a sinful body. And I let it do what the body will do. I tomcat around on my wife. I uh, abuse and get staggeringly drunk. But that's okay. Because it does not affect my soul and my spirit. I recognize that's just my body. My soul is in harmony with the great light of the world. My body just is addicted to things of the evil world. And John's saying, no, you can't go there. If you claim you are having fellowship with the light of the world, there's no darkness in him. If you're walking in darkness, you're lying. If you don't practice the truth. Now, This also helps us understand verses that can be perplexing, especially for younger believers. This a misreading of this verse has driven, as we'll find out when we reach a a strand of Christianity called perfectionism. There is a strand of Christianity that believes that what John is talking about here is that you reach a super spiritual point where you don't sin anymore. And that does not happen for any of us. That's not, that's a misreading of this passage. That's taking it out of its context. John's not saying, hey, you've committed a sin. You must not be God's. I spent two years spiritually wrestling with a young man who thought because he couldn't stop sinning that he must not be saved and must not have fellowship with God. And this was some of the reason why. And so we need to understand this within the, the context in which it's written. And, and, and John continues to say these things over and over and over. And, and, and you, he writes like a symphony. He grabs a theme and he just continues to, to write around that theme and, and show different facets of it and different plays of it. And so you see him writing not in an organized one, two, three, four, five sense but much more like a bouquet of flowers. And and he'll come back and put a rose here, and then he'll put another rose here, even though he's already used a rose. Because it fits here too, and maybe in a slightly different angle. Which is driving some of you crazy as you're memorizing this. Why does he say it again and again, and do it in a slightly different way? I can't remember which time he's doing it where. Serve you right to suffer. Look at these passages now that we've talked about Gnosticism. We've got time for one or two more. Look at what he says in chapter 2, verse 22. Who is the liar? But he who denies that Jesus is the Christ. Not Jesus had the Christ for three key years. But he is the Christ. This is the anti-Christ. 
He who denies the Father and Son. Look at chapter 5, verse 1. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. John's drawing these real stark distinctions. Look at chapter 4, verses 2 and 3. Beloved, do not believe every spirit. But test the spirits to see whether they're from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this, you know the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. Every spirit that does not confess Jesus has come in the flesh is inherent there. Is not from God. If we understand these within the context in which they're written, we get a much fuller flavor. We're getting all of the range of aroma from the text. Because we're beginning to understand how important it is that we recognize the true, authentic nature of our faith. Our faith is not just some neat little system that helps us to live nice, holy lives. It's nice for people to be Christians. It makes them good citizens and neighbors. I'm going to bring my children up because it's a good value system. No. Christianity is rooted in the harsh reality and truth that we are a sinful people who cannot coexist in fellowship with God unless that sin is destroyed by death which was done vicariously in a true act of history, not by a really good human, but by God himself. And so with that, we've got uh, the writings of John, we've got our fruit for home, and we will go from here. Two of these are the same as last week, but now we've got a fuller flavor. I want to say them again. One is a new one. Oh, Timothy, this is Paul writing, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Guard the gen, Timothy's second generation, like Polycarp. Timothy is Paul's Polycarp to John. Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble, the contradictions of what's falsely, falsely called knowledge, gnostics, gnosticism, gnosis in the Greek. For by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Ideas have consequences. I want to be diligent in my study. That's my commitment to you. I was asked recently, how do you have time to do all of this? Have you considered cutting back your preparation time for class? And my commitment to you is this. If I don't have time to prepare, I promise I won't be up here teaching. But I want you to be diligent as well. I want you to be diligent in your study. That means diligent coming to class, but it also means diligent in, in, in reading the text and trying to find time on your own to look at these things and to study these things. I think it's very important to us. We live in a generation where it's going to be even more and more and more important as the younger generation does this skimming of the internet and thinks they've got knowledge when the depth of it won't hold a plant past day three. Because no roots can grow down. 
So we got to have the soil to help infuse that next generation when the heresies start floating out. And that doesn't come overnight. So we got to be diligent in our study. Next, the apostles did not follow cleverly invented stories when we told you about the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is not fiction. This is real. If it's not real, we're playing a game. No, we are wasting our time. Paul said that, not me. If Jesus Christ was not physically resurrected from the dead, then we should be eating and drinking and having the best gas we can because this life is short and when it's over, poof, we're gone. And then finally, Paul said your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Paul wasn't saying it's something that needs to be unzipped and let go. He's saying change how you live. Because God is living within you. I cannot leave this alone without one final comment from Dr. Bob. It's one of my favorite Dr. Bob jokes. Dr. Bob and I struggle both at times with eating. It is my love language. I love to eat. Bob loves to eat. And, one, and when he's on a diet and I'm not, he makes fun of me. When I'm on a diet and he's not, I make fun of him. This was one of those times where I was on a diet and he was not. So I'm lusting after the nachos he's shoving down his face. And I said, Bob, those make you fat. I said, Do you, don't you know your body is the temple of God? And he looked at me and says, you think God deserves a small temple? Let me, let me say a prayer of blessing over you. Lord, with joy in our hearts at being your children, I bless this congregation of, of my friends and my families in this classroom specifically. And we ask you to bless them as they go forth. Stir up within us, Lord, a hunger for things that are revealed by you clearly to change who we are into who you want us to be. We pray through the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you.